so glad to be with you all in here today, and those of you who are at home uh, watching or in the pavilion, we love you. We're so glad you're with us as well. Uh, It's good to be together, whether near or far, and uh, we look forward to looking into Jesus' word to us this morning. I want you to open up your Bibles. Actually, the first place I want you to open up is Exodus 34, uh, starting at verse 6, but we will be in Jonah 4 for most of the morning. Uh, so Exodus 34, 6. But, you know, I want to tell you a story. I, uh, several months back before um, all the things shut down and stuff, um, I was at Starbucks, as I am oftentimes working uh, on either a message or a worship service. And sitting there, and I kind of see a guy who came in picking up a mobile order, and he, he's getting a little agitated, kind of getting a little loud, and then getting a little louder. So I kind of took my earbuds out, you know, like I wasn't like eavesdropping or anything. But uh, I was, and I took my, my earbuds out, and I was like, what's going on here? It's like, is, what's, what's he going to do? And he just starts getting louder and louder. And uh, what I picked up was that he, uh, he had done a mobile order and uh, paid six bucks for it or whatever, and then came in, and, and the cup looked smaller than he expected it to be. He didn't get as much for his money as he was <laughs> expecting to get. I'm like, well, you're at Starbucks. What else do you expect? It's like overpriced coffee, and you pay a lot of money for it. It tastes good, but, you know. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose your half of your bank account by by drinking there. So, uh, but he 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 was just angry. He's like, I paid six bucks for this. I expect there to be more in here, and he's getting louder and louder and louder. And finally, the person behind the the counter just said, Hey, I'll I'll upgrade you to a, a bigger size. Would that make you happy? Yeah. So he quiets down, takes a drink, and goes. And I just was sitting there, and I was pretty angry. I was like, Man, what is wrong with you? You're you know, we're all having peace in here, drinking our latte or whatever you're drinking, and you're coming in here disturbing the peace. And I was kind of upset, and I was thinking, What in the world would cause a person like, you know what you're getting into. It's not like it was the first time you'd ever been to Starbucks. It's not like it was the first time you'd ever spent $6 on an overpriced drink, right? But that day, for whatever reason, he, he wanted to taste the taste of a Starbucks drink, but not pay the price for it. He didn't want Starbucks to be Starbucks, right? And so he made a big stink about it. And I think in a small and silly way, that's kind of a picture of what Jonah is doing here in chapter 4 of of this book. And for ourselves as well, so often we want God to be God, but only to the extent that his character and his actions please me. Does anyone relate with that? I want God, but not in full. Especially, and this is what we're going to see today, especially when we see God loving our enemies, loving people we feel against other than loving people we hate. When God crosses the aisle to show mercy to someone I can't stand. So up to this point, Jonah, you probably are familiar with the story, but Jonah was called by God to go preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, That empire was very cruel, did really horrible things to a lot of people. And uh, Jonah was called to go preach to them. And give them a message uh, that destruction was coming to them. Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh this way on the map, he gets on a boat and goes this way towards Tarshish. Now, God uh, sends a storm on that boat. And the sailors say, what is happening? And Jonah says, well, I'm running from God who made the sea that we're on and the dry land that we'd like to get to. And they're like, what have you done to us? He says, just throw me overboard. And they in mercy, say, no, we'll try to row back. They try and try and try, and they can't. So with only a last resort, they throw them over. These, these pagan sailors who didn't worship God, um, they had more mercy than Jonah did. But they threw him over, and in this belly of the fish, Jonah prays and has a semi-repentance towards God. Um, 
more of an apology, not really repentance. His heart didn't change much. But then the, the, the fish vomits him up on the, ocean, on, the, on the land. He then travels to Nineveh and uh, preaches the world's worst sermon ever. It's five words in Hebrew, and it was basically, y'all are going to die. That's my sermon, amen, you know, pass the offering plate. That was his sermon. And miraculously, Nineveh repents from the, 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 the lowest to the highest, even the king put on sackcloth and ashes and they're repenting of their sin. They even put sackcloth on their cows, man. The cows are repenting. That's funny. That's funny. The cows are repenting. I mean, this is the depth that they went to, man. Even cover the cows just in case that'll get some grace from God for us. And so we find ourselves in chapter four, God not having punished the Ninevites, he relents. And so in Jonah chapter 4, we basically watch Jonah melt down into, into angry Starbucks guy, right? God, I know the kind of person you are, and I knew that's what you were, but I don't like it. See, Jonah knew the scriptures. He wasn't like, he wasn't a beginner at Old Testament theology. He knew, he knew his Bible. He knew exactly who God had revealed him to be. And that's what makes this chapter even more jaw-dropping. So I want to take you back in time, before we get to Jonah 4, back in time to Exodus 34. This is right after the Israelites have been taken out of horrible slavery in Egypt. God is making a covenant with them, a relationship with them, saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you this law, and we're going to do this thing together. And Moses says to God at one point, God, would you show me your glory? And what that's basically saying is, God, I want to know what makes you, you. Who are you really What's your character? Show that to me. And God says, okay, I will. And so here's what God says about himself. Exodus 34, verse 6. It'll be on the screens if you'd like to watch it there. But here's what it says. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. Now, your Bible says Lord, Lord, but that's just a substitution for God's name, Yahweh. That's God's personal name. So God walks by Moses and says, Yahweh, Yahweh, I'm about to define myself. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, never giving up love, right? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here's, if we boil that down, what God reveals about himself, there's two major components of God and who he is that God revealed in that passage. First of all, he's saying, I lead with grace. I am a God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness who doesn't live in his anger and his wrath. I commit myself to people with this like deep love to the extent that I will forgive their treason and their rebellion against me. Like, I want to forgive. I don't want to punish people. I actually want to forgive. And yet, the second thing he shows is somehow, even though he's infinitely forgiving of sin, that sin won't go unpaid for. I want to forgive sin, and I will not let sin go unpunished. Some of you know exactly where this is heading. I won't let injustice go unpunished, he says, but somehow I will find a way to punish all sin while still forgiving you and showing great mercy. And church, if you haven't ever seen it before, one of the things that makes God God is this. What makes God God? Unmerited, merciful love that gives life to perfect justice. 
Love that leads to justice. Love that ensures that all injustice that has been done will be made right. This reality of God's complete justice and at the same time unbelievable mercy living together in perfect unity was foreshadowed in Israel's sacrificial system, right? These people who had committed sins would bring an animal to the temple and and the animal would be killed, not the person who did the, the sin. So justice is somehow done, but a person is also forgiven, living in the same boat, right? Jonah grew up up seeing this all the time, how his sins were paid for by bringing an animal and something else besides him paid for what he had done. And you and I who live on this side of the cross, we see it to the most clear picture it possibly could be. It's when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus took your sin, my sin, all who would ever believe in him, and he was punished in himself for our sin. Perfect justice because the sin is paid for. Perfect forgiveness because we go free. So this is who God says he is, who God had proclaimed to all of Israel. Jonah knew this very well. He was very well acquainted with the book of Exodus and exactly the kind of God that Yahweh is and was. The kind that would see great sin and injustice and somehow find a way to forgive. Not only did Jonah know this from scripture, but he knew it from experience and recently, didn't he? Let's not forget what Jonah just got done doing. Jonah just got done rebelling against God and then giving a halfway sermon, five words, and then I'm done. Jonah's heart is still in rebellion. He just experienced the grace of God. God could have been done with him when he was thrown over. He could have said, I'm done with you, Jonah, just drown. He just experienced amazing grace. So so yeah, Jonah knows exactly what kind of God he belongs to, the one that forgives and is merciful and is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. And this is what makes the first verses of this chapter in Jonah 4 go there now. It's what makes it so shocking. You see, God had seen the great sin of the Assyrian Empire, and specifically the great city of Nineveh, and And even after the world's worst sermon that Jonah preached, God brought about deep repentance in the Ninevites. Even their cows are repenting. And so God relents and doesn't destroy Nineveh. And here's what Jonah's response is in Jonah 4, verse 1. Read with me. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Back when I was in Israel, this is what I said in my heart. I knew it. I knew it. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For why? I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Does that sound familiar? Something we just read. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. God's mercy on the Ninevites makes Jonah fiercely angry. And here in verse 2, Jonah regurgitates everything that's been kind of roiling around in him since chapter 1. Everything that's been inside of him, he finally admits the truth to God and why he ran away and why he's just so ticked off. 
Now, the obvious answer is that Jonah just plain hates the Ninevites. He doesn't like them. That could be for a myriad of reasons. It could be because he was just a racist, like, I'm Israelite, they're Assyrian, I don't like them, they're not like me. Forget them. God only loves Israel. It could have been that. It could have been because he saw the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire. It could have been both. Who knows exactly why he hated them, but he did. He wanted to see them burn. But that obvious answer isn't the only answer why Jonah is so angry, and we see it here in this chapter. There's a deeper and even more troubling answer for why Jonah is angry. Jonah justifies his anger by quoting back to God God's own description of himself. Did you notice that? Why am I angry? Because of who you are. He quotes back to God exact copies of what God said about himself in Exodus 34. He's saying, I'm angry, God, because you are the way you are. I want you to be that way to me, but I don't want you to be that way to my enemy, and so I'm ticked off. He's basically saying, God, I would rather die than live in a world where you are who you are. Shocking. I would rather cease to exist than to go on in this life tolerating a God like you. Look at God's response. Verse 4. This is equally shocking. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? He just asks him a question. He keeps working with him. He keeps trying to move his heart in his direction. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Is this a good thing that you're so mad right now? Now, let me stop and ask you. Let's make this real, okay? If, if your kid, if you're a parent and your kid, or let's just say you have a friend or someone, but someone comes to you, but let's, a parent and a kid, right, comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I hate everything you are. I would rather die than to live in a world where you are my parent and I am your child. Mom, Dad, everything that makes you you makes my skin crawl, and I would rather die and keep living in your house. If your kid came to you and said that to you, would your response be, hmm, child, do you do well to be angry? That's not what my natural response would be. Huh? You know, like, I would rather die. Oh, I, I can arrange that. I brought you into this world. I will take, you know, that's how our natural response would be. But the continued grace of God towards Jonah is just unreal. So I want to stop and capture this thought. Let's turn it towards ourselves. God's mercy toward you is proof that God loves his enemies. Has God been merciful to you? He has to me. Proof that God loves enemies. Because you are someone's enemy and you were God's enemy. Romans 5.10, we read it this morning. Certainly, someone in this world doesn't like you. I mean, Andy Daub might be the, you know, the only person I know who's, the, you know, not like that. Everyone loves Andy. But all the rest of you, someone hates you. I mean, some, there are people in this world who hate me, who don't like me, who, who wish that I wasn't who I was. And each one of you probably have the same thing. You know, you're someone's enemy. 
and you were God's enemy, but the fact that God has shown mercy to you shows that God loves enemies. So let's see how Jonah responds to this gracious question. God doesn't slap him, he just asks a question. And Jonah, verse five here, says, it says this about him. Jonah went out of the city. Doesn't even answer God. He went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth like a tent, a little shelter for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, till he should see what would become of the city. He's hoping God's going to change his mind. Man, maybe I'll see some fireworks. Maybe something will happen in Nineveh. He's just watching. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might, that, it, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. A couple things to notice here. Jonah moves farther east. You see, Jonah started here in Israel. That's where the temple of God is, right? He goes to Tarshish to run away from Nineveh. So he goes this way. And then he semi-repents. And in that repentance, in that prayer, he says, oh God, if I could only be in your temple and my prayers could go up in your temple. He's longing to be back in, in Jerusalem in, in God's temple. And then God says, okay, sends him to Nineveh. He goes over to Nineveh and it doesn't work out the way he wants him to. The Nineveh fights don't burn. So what does he do? Does he head back home? Does he head back toward the temple and the presence of God? No, he goes further east. He's now sitting somewhere further east, farther away from the presence of God and far, farther away from the Ninevites, he's like, I'm done with all of you. And yet in verse 6, even though Jonah is even farther in his heart away from God, we see God almost spoiling Jonah with mercy. He says, you're angry at me, you don't want me to be who I am, and now you're running away again, so I'm going to grow a plant over your head to ease your discomfort? It's almost like God's spoiling Jonah but he's showing immense mercy to this rebellious heart. The author of Jonah here is just piling on the merciful nature of God. And then we pick up in verse seven and it says this, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it, the plant withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The irony built into the language of this book is awesome. Whoever wrote this, inspired by God, was brilliant. In chapter 1, we see God appoint a fish to save Jonah. And here in this chapter, God appoints a plant to shade Jonah. Then God appoints a worm to kill the plant and then appoints a wind to scorch. So there's a fish, a plant, a worm, and a wind that obey. Wildlife and inanimate forces of nature all do the exact bidding of God. Not to even mention the ruthless pagan empire that is now repenting in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone else, even worms and winds, are doing the will of God. What's Jonah doing? Pouting. Rebellious. Still unrepentant. The prophet of God, who's the person we would expect to be doing, the only person we'd expect to be doing the right thing. 
The only being in this whole book that we'd expect to obey God perfectly or even semi-perfectly. He's the only one who isn't. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Church, people who follow Jesus, we can think we're so high and mighty. And we can be so wrong. We can sometimes be the people that ought to be obeying God, but we're the very ones who aren't. And the people who don't know Jesus can be acting more like him than we do. Don't miss it. Is that you? Is that me? Jonah, completely missing the irony of all of this, he just entrenches his heart in rebellion and in bigotry and in hatred. And the only thing that Jonah has any feelings for or pity for in this whole book is what? A plant that only benefited him. He didn't plant it. He didn't do anything for it. It just benefited him. That's the only thing he has feelings for in this entire book. And yet, once again, we see God trying to reason with Jonah. He doesn't wash his hands of Jonah. He's coaxing him with heart change. Repent. Come back to me. And so now we come to verse 10. Now, you need to stop for a second and take your breath. I know it's hard. You got a mask on. If you're in here, if you're at home, you're you're doing awesome. Take a deep breath as much as you can. This is going to be the most unsatisfying end to a story you've ever read in your entire life. There is no satisfaction at the end of this story, and it's meant to be that way. And I'm going to warn you, it also, if you look at it rightly and read it rightly, it will hurt. Take a deep breath. Here we go. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great or that large city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left hand? And also much cattle, the end. What? There there must be another page here. The scroll must have gotten cut off somewhere. There must be an end to this story. That's the end. Cows? Cows is the last word of Jonah. What is happening here? We're left without even a hint of how Jonah responds to this. We have no clue what happened to Jonah and how he responded to God's question. And as we ponder this, the reality just flips on like a light bulb. It's not important what happened to Jonah or what he did. What's important is what you do and what I do with this question. The author drops us off a cliff, not telling us about Jonah, so that we are faced with the Jonah mirror. The mirror. All this time we've been watching Jonah. We've been watching what he does. And, oh, Jonah, look at him. He's disobedient. Oh, he doesn't care about that. Look at this guy. And then at the very end, God does a switcheroo and moves Jonah right out of the way. And we're facing ourselves in a mirror. Not just individually, but us together collectively as the church. 
we find ourselves having to face not who Jonah is, but who we are. And so here's the heart of the question that God asked Jonah that now we are left to consider for us. Here's what he's basically saying to Jonah in this last question. He says, Jonah, I know you hate these people. I know you feel you have every reason to wish harm on them. But you cared about a plant, something you have no investment in, no long-term commitment or relationship with. Jonah, you cared about a plant. Well, I planted the people of Nineveh. I made each one of those people, and I've been watching every one of them since they were born, the newborn babies in their mother's arms. I know that so many of them have become wicked, Jonah. I know that they've rebelled. I know that they don't respect me. But Jonah, neither do you. Look at yourself. Look at what you're doing. No different than them. Jonah, there are 120,000 people over in that city that my heart is deeply invested in. And I feel deep and sorrowful pity for them because they are so very lost, just like you, Jonah. So Jonah, if you can't care for them, can you at least understand why I do? You see God working with Jonah, pleading with Jonah just to understand his grace. Jonah, move towards me just a few more inches. And Jonah, I'm so invested in you that I'll make a concession. What about the cows? They're innocent. They haven't done anything bad to you. If you can't care about 120,000 people, can you just start with caring about the repenting cows? That's both ironic and funny and tragic in the same moment. Jonah, I'll, I'll take the cows. You can't care about the 120 people. What about the cows? Jonah, if you can just move your heart two degrees closer in my direction, we can make this work. I'll keep working with you. I'll keep working hard to show your heart my heart. And so, not knowing the end of Jonah's story, guess what? You and I get to finish it for him. You and I, people who have trusted Jesus, or if you don't yet know Jesus, you get to trust Jesus and finish this story for Jonah. Every one of us has a line drawn in our hearts. There are people who are in, there are people who are out. Every one of us have people that we love. Every one of us have people that we either hate or least case scenario, we just don't care about. We disregard, we brush them off, we disdain them. Some of it's based on things they've done to us. Some of it's based on what political party they're part of. Some of it's based on which, whether they think wearing masks makes sense or not. Sometimes it's uh, uh, what side of the tracks you live on. Sometimes it's what skin color. Sometimes it's what country you came from. Sometimes it's what, re what religion are you a part of. We all have these lines in our heart and we say, here are people who are in with me and here are people who are outside 
of my love. And we treat the outsiders, those who we see not like us, with disregard. and We brush them off and we disdain them. I want you to imagine that person right now or that political party or that group or for some of us who still struggle deeply with racism and bigotry, that people group. Maybe it's the, the last person you called an idiot. You were watching the news and what you said in your heart or out loud to someone else is, what an idiot. Think of that person right now. Imagine them in your mind. If you need to, close your eyes. And I want to say this, and I want it to hit home. God loves my enemy as much as he loves me. God pities the people that I hate. Now, this is even harder. I want you to say it out loud. Say out loud, God loves my enemy as much as he loves me. Say it. God loves my enemy as much as he loves me. Is that hard for you to swallow thinking about the person that you were thinking about? That God loves that person every bit as much as he loves you. Our world is in such a tragic place of division and hate right now, church. And part of the reason is because the people in the church have let go of our birthright as light in the dark. We've forgotten, so often we've forgotten that our king not only said that we are to love our enemies, but he showed us how to do it. If we, the people of Jesus' church, don't show the world how to love our enemy, who will? This place will only get darker and darker and darker because hate builds on hate. Division builds on division. And who else but the church of Jesus who died for his enemies, who else has the power and ability to show what it's like to love someone who's different than me? Love someone who's across the, the dividing line, the place where I say, here's my line. I don't like anything past this. And there's people there. Millions and millions of people there on that side of your line. If the church does not learn how to love our enemies, this world is lost. Utterly lost. We are God's plan for love on this earth. If we, as the people of Jesus' church, don't show the world how to lay down our rights, lay down our freedom to lob grenades on social media, oh, you know you've done it. I haven't because I don't have social media, but I would have. I can say whatever I want because it's America. It's free. Yes, you're right. You have the freedom to say whatever you want. And yet you lob grenades. We lob grenades at people we disagree with. Call them stupid. Call them idiots. These are people that God made and he died for.
if we can't learn how to love our enemies, who will show the world how it's done? Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says this, for he, Jesus, himself, he is our peace, who has made us both, Jews, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, two different races, actually many different races, the Jews and then everyone else. He's made us both one, and he's broken down in his flesh. Imagine him on the cross. He's broken down, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He busted that wall down. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new human in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both, me and the people on the other side of the dividing wall, reconcile us both to God in one body, one, through the cross. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Church, lean in and listen to this. Jesus died to make reconciliation possible. And if it was significant enough to take up residence on Jesus' cross, it is significant enough to take up residence in my heart. Jesus died to make divided people one. One. Certainly there are lines in the sand we cannot cross. There are things we must believe. Things we must do and things we must not do as followers of Jesus Christ. Truth is a real thing and it does not move and it does not alter. Truth is always truth. God knows this better than anyone else. And yet... He was willing to both love and pursue people who were light years away from agreeing with him on anything. Isn't that what he did for you? When you were an enemy, when you were in sin, isn't that what Jesus did for you? You didn't agree with him on anything. And yet he pursued you. I loved you. He pursued me. He loved me. When we didn't agree on anything, God did not lead with judgment or demands. He led with mercy. Isn't that what he did for you? It's what he did for me. He led with mercy. Did Jesus die to pay the penalty for our sins on that cross? Oh, yes, he did. But that's not all he did. That's not all he accomplished on the cross. May we never limit what Jesus accomplished on the cross as he paid for my sins. Did he? And oh, yes, that's glorious. But that's not all he did. Jesus also died to tear down walls that have divided human beings for thousands and thousands of years. This is not a secondary issue Us reconciling and having peace with other human beings is not a secondary issue. If Jesus died to accomplish it, it is not secondary. If it took up real estate on the cross, it is not secondary. 
And yet the church is so often found asleep in the light. Oh, we can quote scripture. Oh, how we can list our doctrinal stance and what we believe. And how we can list out all the ways that all the other people in the world are messing this place up and rebelling against God. We have all this light. And yet, so often when Jesus says, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. And when he says, bless and do not curse. We just rip that page out of the Bible and slap our rights in its place. Oh, how lost we are if the First Amendment is not governed by the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Oh, how lost we are when our rights to speech overtake our call to love. Oh, how lost we are when we are Americans first and Christians second. If right now listening to this you feel offense at my words, please accept my apology. I am not at all trying to hurt or make you uncomfortable. I'm preaching it myself too. You know that. And I'm not trying to denigrate the beauty of what we have here in America with our freedoms. It is a gift from God. It's, it's, it's just that it doesn't belong to you. My rights don't belong to me. I was bought at a price. Jesus died and he bought me. He bought my sin away from me. He bought my right to govern myself away from me. He bought my rights away from me and now he's the king over it. You and I, following Jesus, don't live in a democracy. We live in a kingdom with a king. You have rights, but they don't belong to you anymore. Don't misunderstand me, though. This world, it needs to hear your voice. It needs your voice. This world needs you to engage in it and use the amazing freedoms that you've been given to contribute to a good, safe, peaceful, and thriving society. This country needs to hear from you, but they don't need to hear about your opinions and your rights. They need to hear about your Savior. What are you using your words to promote? What's owed to you or the one who died for you? There are people in this world, church, that need you to care about them, even if just a little bit. There are people in pain, and their pain doesn't affect you, but they need you to care. They need us to care. 
They need the church to have empathy. There are people in this world that you ignore or dismiss or hate that need you to care more about their eternity than about your entitlements. They need you to care more about their pain than your opinions. And so, together, as I preach to you, and believe me, I've been preaching to myself all week, it's been uncomfortable. Man, it's been uncomfortable. But I want to invite you to join me in some soul searching this week. Can we do that together? Can we do that at home? Can we do some soul searching together? Here are two questions I challenge you to spend some long walks pondering or maybe with a a friend or family member over a cup of coffee talking about. It'll be uncomfortable, but it'll be so good. Here's the first question I have for you. Who must I begin to love in order to continue following Jesus? Who must I begin to love in order to continue following Jesus? Because here's the reality. Jesus is moving towards your enemy with love. He's moving towards him. You're moving right behind him. You're following Jesus. And he moves then towards your enemy with love. And you say, wait a second. No, I can't go there. What just happened? Stopped following Jesus. Saying you became unsaved. I'm, not, I'm saying... In your life, you're supposed to be tracking right behind him. He moves towards your enemy with love and you stop. Distance occurs. So who do you need to start loving so that you can continue to follow your king? Now, I want to encourage you with this. This is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I was thinking about that comment and thinking about people who have been horribly abused by somebody. People who've been taken advantage, stolen from, emotionally, physically, sexually abused by someone. That is a tall, tall order to love your enemy. I myself had something happen to me a year and a half ago with a personal relationship where the person who I had invested in and at cost to myself emotional cost to myself, had kept a relationship going with, an important relationship in my life, and the person decided it was no longer good for them. So he cut off the relationship and said, I'm done. At first I was just hurt. Then I was angry. And then I was resentful. And then I was hateful. I can't say that I want good for that person right now. But I can say I'm no longer feeling as deep of a resentment and hate. I'm just more at a place of indifference right now. I feel like God's saying, Travis, I can work with that. Take the cows. And that might be where you are. You might be hating someone. If you just move two degrees towards God, help me not to. Heal my heart. God says, I can work with that. God, you do know I don't love them yet. I can work with that. God, I went from just I went from hate to disgust today. I can work with that. Isn't that what he did for Jonah? Isn't that what he'll do for you? 
God is patient and he is kind. Just keep turning his direction with forgiveness and mercy degree by degree by degree and he will work with that. A second question I want you to consider. What do I need to start caring about to let God finish the work he has started in me? What do I need to start caring about so God can finish? There are issues in this world, like I said before, that don't affect you and I. Maybe it just hasn't touched our lives or maybe that's not, I'm not the person who's suffering. It's so easy not to care about those things, isn't it? So easy to say, that's someone else's problem. Well, Jonah didn't care about the Ninevites, and then when he got there, he couldn't care less what happened to them. But God cares. I think every single Christian who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ needs to have this kind of category to label certain things in their mind. It's called this, things I don't naturally care about, but God does, so I will too. A long category, I know. Every one of us needs to have that category in my mind. Things that I don't naturally care about, but God does, so I'm going to join him in it, in caring, in doing something. When this world is in pain, we have to be the first people who run towards the pain. Maybe there are things we need to just even start caring about just a little bit that we should have been on the front lines about decades ago. But whatever it is, let God change your heart. Let God change your heart. Let him change the broken, hateful, unloving places in you. It may be painful, but you will not regret it. Promise you. No, I don't promise you. God promises you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are in need. Every one of us is in need of a heart change, heart transplant, heart surgery. Every one of us has lines we've drawn in the sand and said, I can't go any further than this to love somebody. I can't love that person. I can't be anything but disgusted about that person. God, we need your help. We don't want our lives to end like the book of Jonah where people say, I don't know what happened. I don't know what that person ever did. I don't know how they responded to God. I want to finish the last chapter. I want there to be a Jonah chapter five in my life. We want there to be a Jonah chapter five in our life. Oh God, you're the only one who can do it. You're the only one who can change us. Oh God, do it. Help us to care and help us to be defined by deep, sacrificial, self-giving love every day of our lives, even if just inch by inch by inch. Oh God, do it in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be listening this morning and here in the room, or you may be at home, and you may realize that you've never given your heart, given your surrender to this God who loves you so much. Would you do it today? Would you pray and would you tell him, Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need you to forgive me of my sins and show me mercy because I've messed it up, but you can change it all. If that's you, would you just text CP Prayer to 555-888? We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, and introduce Jesus to you. 
If you needed a prayer for anything else, please text that as well. Whether you're in the room or at home, text that CP prayer to 555-888. We'd love to talk with you.